Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. George Yancey is a Christian sociologist. I believe he's in North Texas. And he has done a bit of a study on the American population's attitude toward Christians, and specifically theologically conservative Christians, those who go to church, affirm the Bible's teaching, and who have theologically conservative beliefs. And the question that he posed was this, what do Americans think of theologically conservative Christians? The answers he, he found were established in a book and published in a book called um, So Many Christians, So Few Lions. Gives you an idea of some of the responses that he received. He coined the term Christianophobia, where there is a fear and a resentment toward Christians. Here are some of the comments that he received. <clears throat> the members, Christians, are generally superstitious, share the same attitudes that led to the religious atrocities of medieval Europe. It is to the disgrace of humanity that such ignorance, superstition, and intolerance still exists and persists in the modern age. It is a shame that, in an age of enlightenment and scientific achievement, pre-medieval superstition is still so evident. It reinforced the idea that I had that they were mostly stupid people pushing a program of militant ignorance in a delusionary dream that a magic invisible sky daddy God and his offspring were guiding their every thought and action. Advanced beyond Santa and the Easter Bunny, but still at a juvenile intellectual stage. My brother, a highly intellectual but troubled young man, abandoned all reason and embraced conservative thinking. It is a tremendously depressing waste of his potential. So lest we think that things have changed and that the tide has turned, that attitude is still prevalent. The natural man receives not the things of the spirit and he cannot because they are spiritually discerned. Today I thought it would be profitable if we turned our attention to Elijah. Romans 15.4 says, Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scripture, we might have what? Hope. We might have hope. We are going to be studying some lessons from history. So, you'll remember that the Samaritans uh, were a population that were not accepted or loved by the Jews of the South, because of their departure from the historic faith of Judaism. Samaritans uh, were opposing the building of the temple, the building of the wall. They uh, were forbidden to offer sacrifices at Jerusalem temple or to intermarry with the people from the southern kingdom. Um, they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. You remember in the New Testament the stories of the Samaritans. Jesus was even blasphemed against and called a Samaritan. Remember that? And of course, you know the story of the Samaritan woman. Why are you talking to a woman, never mind a Samaritan? And of course, the story of the Good Samaritan, which turned the apostles' heads so that they were twisting around on their very pivot. Um, The Samaritans, however, received Jesus' ministry, and there were people who were converted from Samaria. 
Well, the context for Elijah and the account of he, Ahab, Jezebel, the prophets of Mount Baal and Carmel is 1 Kings. So I want to encourage everybody, please turn to 1 Kings starting in verse 16. You'll remember that the synchronistic worship of Israel, the northern tribes, uh, King Ahab ruled about 150 years after David, and they were practicing the very evil that the Israelites were supposed to have driven out of the land, that idolatry. And under the patronage of Queen Jezebel, prophets of the Canaanite high god Baal had carte blanche to do what they wanted in Israel. These prophets brought paganism to the ancient Israelites and gave false comfort to the royal court. And in that scene, you have Elijah, who is contramundum on fire. He is the fiery prophet. As a result of the king's sins of King Solomon going after foreign and false gods, God ordained that the kingdom would be divided. You'll remember that Jeroboam, uh, who is one of Solomon's servants, rebelled. And he was actually anointed by the prophet Abijah, who told him that God in judgment was going to give him ten of the kingdoms, the northern kingdoms. Jeroboam was not a righteous man. He even instituted idol, idol worship, introducing two calves. Remember that? Two golden calves. He set them up. And then, after Solomon was dying, uh, he joined in, again, in a rebellion with, against Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and the one who was going to be appointed king. And because of Rehoboam's foolishness, the kingdom was split. Well, 62 years after Solomon's death, Ahab became king of the northern tribes. So beginning in 1 Kings 16, let's summarize the account, and we're going to make some observations on how God's people can respond in a hostile environment, and I have 10 principles that are outlined there in the scripture. Now remember, 1 Kings 16, uh, starting in verse 22, uh, Elijah is the prophet of the day, Ahab is doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord more than anyone else who were before him. And if you look at verse 33, not only did he erect an altar for Baal in the house of Baal that he built in Samaria, which was the seat of power in the northern kingdom, but he also made the Asherah. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. The sacrifices were done there. They even sacrificed pigs and children in their worship. The Asherah were worshipped in many ways, and you'll remember that there was a lot of temple prostitution involved in that. And as part of God's chastening and judgment, Elijah predicts a drought leading to famine. And after making the pronouncement, God commands Elijah to hide where he will be protected from Ahab and fed by ravens. Neat miracle there, because ravens are not a generous bird. They're thieves and they even neglect their young. But God used these birds to provide for his people. Well, first principle. The glorious light, truth and testimony of God will not be put out. We are to align ourselves in times of trial and difficulty with his purpose and strengthen ourselves by being found under solid preaching and teaching. He will provide for the protection of his people and promulgation of his truth in ways that will astonish us. That's the first principle. And if you look at 1 Kings 17, you see that God not only tells Elijah, the Tishbite, to go ahead and pronounce this judgment on Israel, but then 
in judgment, he also pulls Elijah and has him hide. Now, there are two reasons for this. Number one is this is a judgment against the land that the prophet of God, the message of God, the word of God is removed. But it's also a protection that Elijah would not be persuaded by people to go against what God had commanded. He prayed earnestly in holy indignation at the apostasy, and he had a holy zeal for the glory of God, but he was not going to be solicited to revoke the sentence, the execution of which he had said would be according to God's word. Well, 2 Timothy 2, verse 8 and 9, reminds us that the word of God is not bound. During times of trial and persecution and hostility, we need to remember that the word of God is not bound. He still will have his truth be heard. Right? You can shackle the feet of the messenger, but the message will go out. Now, second principle. What happens after Elijah hides and is by the brook? He's drinking from the brook. He's being fed by ravens. What happens? Where does he go? The widow of Zarephath, right? He goes to the widow of Zarephath. Brings us to principle number two. Even in times of adversity, God calls us to be a blessing to others and will continue to provide for his people. He will use adverse circumstances to grow in faith. And that's exactly what he did. Elijah wasn't just being hidden. During that time of persecution, prosecution, and terror, he brought Elijah to a place of usefulness. And he can bring us to that place of usefulness during times of trial. He had Elijah be a blessing to this widow. And since he's working on everybody in the room, (laughs) he's working on this widow's heart as well. What does she say? She says at the end there, verse 24, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth in truth. When he first met her, she said, Well, the Lord your God. But now there's a turning, isn't there? And Elijah, even in this difficult time, is able to be a blessing. You know, you and I have been in a country that has had incredible safety for the gospel message. This is unusual in the history of the church. And we can think that it's strange that there's an antagonism toward the gospel now. And we can say, give us our country back. But angry, desperate reactions only show that how out of step we are with the tenor of the New Testament. Entitlement and resentment reveal a heart far into the, resent- to the reality of a better country, a heavenly one, as described in Hebrews 11. In Acts 14, the apostles, after they had preached the gospel and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And what did they say? Through many tribulations, right? Through many persecutions, we must enter the kingdom of God. All right, after three years, Elijah, continuing in 1 Kings, now we're in 1 Kings 18, verse 1, you see that God commands Elijah to go to Ahab, right? 
At the same time, in the providence of God, a faithful man was sent in one direction to look for grass and water for the animals threatened by the drought and famine. By the way, if you notice, Ahab really doesn't care that much for the people. He's caring for the animals, which shows you how skewed his thinking is. Brings us to our next principle, principle number three. During times of adversity, God will have faithful people installed just where he wants them and will use them for his purposes and glory. They may be different from you, but they will still be used of God. We're talking about Obadiah. What's interesting about Obadiah and his job? Who's he working for? He's working for Ahab. And what did Obadiah do? What did this faithful man do? He hid the prophets. And what, besides that, what else did he do? He fed them. He made certain they had sustenance. All right? So here's this man in the midst of wickedness. And he's being faithful to God. He's being used of God. The word of God is being protected and preserved through him. You and I may be in difficult circumstances. And yet, God has you where he wants you. And he can use you to his end and his glory. He has you there for a purpose. He has me in my situation for a purpose. By the way, if, if you see any other observations here during our class, just feel free to jump in. Otherwise, I'll take the whole time. <laughs> All right. Yes, notice that. He feared the Lord greatly. Verse 3, what else? Look at verse 12. What else do you find out about him? He feared the Lord from his youth, right? Right? He was zealous, eminently good. It's strange to find such an eminently good man governor of Ahab's house, a, a, an office of honor, power, and trust. Joseph and Daniel were preferred because they were, there was nobody else who was as fit as they were for the places they were assigned. Those who profess faith should study to recommend themselves to the, the esteem of those that are without faith by integrity, fidelity, and application to business. That man is true to his God, will also be faithful to those that have authority. Obadiah could, with a good conscience, enjoy the place that God put him in. And he did not need to go out of the world, as bad as it was. Well, you know, Jezebel may have persecuted the prophets and killed them because Elijah had the message of judgment, the drought, and the famine. You know, it's like the old Latin phrase, Christianos ad leones, away with Christians to the lions. Away with Christians to the lions. Well, principle number four. Principle number four is this. There may be instances when it's completely national, natural, rational, and realistic to fear but the remedy is to trust in God's word and God's message to us. So, look at 1 Kings 8, starting in verse seven, 18, verse 7. Obadiah is on his way, and who does he meet? 
He's just wandering around looking for grass and water, right? Who does he meet? Elijah, right? And what is his reaction? Well, there's first, you know, reverence and appreciation for who Elijah was, right? But then Elijah says, hey, go tell Ahab in his reaction. He does that later on, but in his conversation with Obadiah, okay. he does talk about vacillating between two options later on with the people at, on Mount Carmel. But what's Obadiah's reaction? He's, you, you want me to do what? You want me to, you want me to speak to power? I'm not going to do that. He's going to kill me. It's completely rational that he should react that way. It's completely understandable. You know, not everybody is a fiery Elijah calling down fire from heaven, right? Not everybody is the sons of thunder wanting to do the same. Obadiah is this man who's, you know, living where Satan dwells, working under the adversary to the people of God, and he is doing great things, but he's not of the same temperament. And God's going to have you and I in different places. You may be extremely bold. You may be quiet. You may be introverted. But God is going to use us in those circumstances, regardless of our personality. And it's completely understandable that Obadiah should say, oh, oh no. <laughs> but what turns his heart? What encourages Obadiah's heart? What does the text say? Look at verse 15. Here's the messenger of God. Here's the prophet of God. And he's making this incredible promise and commitment. As the Lord of hosts lives. This is an oath. Before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. And now what's Obadiah's reaction? Next verse. He goes. There are times when you and I are fearful and we will be comforted, strengthened, and emboldened to do the right thing because we're trusting in the message from God and his mouthpiece. Elijah bravely encourages Obadiah and himself to go to Ahab. Principle number five. The righteous can be bold as a lion and not compromise when challenged. So, starting in verse 17, Ahab sees Elijah, right? And what does he say? What does he say? Is that you, you troublemaker? Now, this is interesting. Do you remember how Saul was afraid of Samuel? I think there was the same fear here between Ahab and Elijah. I think Ahab feared Elijah. <clears throat> he didn't immediately pounce upon him and have him killed. I don't think it could have happened, but he didn't do that. You know, and Elijah, bold as a lion, says, I am not the troubler of Israel. You are. 
because of your idolatry and your making the people of God to stumble and worship false gods. You and your father's house, you've forsaken the commandments of the Lord. Elijah called him a troubler. He invites Ahab to a challenge. The ruiner or troubler of Israel, Ahab, like himself, basely accuses Elijah. He doesn't strike him, remembering that Jeroboam's hand withered. Remember that? Jeroboam? Remember Jeroboam, the northern kingdom? The prophet came, and, the, and Jeroboam raised, raised out his hand and pointed to the prophet. What happened to his hand and his arm? Remember? Shriveled up. And Jeroboam was saying, Oh, have pity on me, my poor arm. And the prophet prayed, and his arm was restored. <clears throat> well, principle number seven. <clears throat> While there are those, where are we here? Am I falling behind? Number six. Uh, number six, all right. Number six, yeah, there we are, six. Uh, while there are those dedicated to antagonism, there are those who have weak faith that can be rightly addressed, challenged, and encouraged with solid faith. Look at chapter 18 and verse 21. So Elijah comes up to Mount Carmel. He has gathered all of these people. By the way, if you notice, 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah. That's 850. The number is different later on. But you notice that in 1 Kings 18.21, who does Elijah talk to? Does he talk to the false prophets? No. Is he talking to Ahab? No. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the people. Remember, these are the people who are involved in synchronistic worship. They're worshiping two gods. They're vacillating between two opinions. Right? They're double-minded. They're friends of the world. They're friends of God. This is not happening. And here's this principle. While there are those who are dedicated to antagonism and being against the faith, there are still those that you and I can seek to persuade, to share the gospel with. We don't have to see everybody as someone that'd be a worth, waste of our time to talk to. Not everybody is going to receive the message of the gospel like pearls before swine. God has his people, and we can be faithful to proclaim the gospel, to stand up for truth with confidence that God will use his word, his spirit, and even us, even us, for the furtherance of the gospel. Yes, question. We're, yeah, we're going to get to verse 22 in, in a little bit here. Good question. <clears throat> Is he really alone? Well, what happened with Obadiah? He had a hundred prophets hidden away, and he knew about this, right? So Elijah knew about the hundred prophets. He knew about Obadiah. So there's at least 102 people, Right? Later on, he gets forgetful. So, 
Elijah talks to those who are double-minded. It's a theme that runs through the prophets in all the New Testament as well. God is not interested in half-hearted commitment. He will either have our hearts in their entirety or he will have nothing to do with us. What does Joshua 25 verse 15 say? As for me and my house, right? Choose you this day. You know, think about the book of Revelation. Because you are neither hot nor cold, I will what? Spew you out of my mouth, right? The heart is divided, Hosea 10 verse 2. And God will have none of it. So, Elijah lets them go first. He lets them choose their ox and have no disadvantage, 1 Kings 18 verse 20. And then a theme that's really important here throughout all of the history of Elijah is prayer. When you and I are in times of adversity, when we get challenged in our faith, when we look at our society and see it crumbling, we can be very prone to not pray. We should not neglect prayer. The times of adversity are designed to cause you and I to grow in faith and dependence upon an amazing, all-powerful sovereign who cares more about us than we ever could. Ethan, you're not sleeping, are you? Okay, good. All right. A simple prayer of faith. They're not jumping up and down. Elijah's not cutting himself. You know, God is not off somewhere else. You know, and what happens? What happens after this simple prayer? Fire comes down from heaven. What does it consume? Everything. Everything. Not only the offering, not only the wood, but the stones, the dust, and the water. This has never happened before. Has fire come down from heaven and consumed offerings previously? Yes, but never to this extent. A simple prayer offered in faith. And what was the glorious reaction? What was the glorious reaction with these people who were double-minded? Well, he said they, they claimed the Lord. The Lord said, yeah. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The people, as a jury, gave their verdict. It came in. They're all agreed on it. The case is so plain, they didn't have to deliberate very far, did they? The jury came out, just came in. We know what the answer is. The Lord, he is God. Right? There is judgment. Right? There is judgment. But there's also relief. There's relief. There's rain that's coming, Right? It's rain that's coming. Look what else happens. Look at, look at, look at verse 41. This is, this is amazing. Now Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. And then look, look again in verse 44. It came about at the seventh time that he said, Behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming from the sea. And he said to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down so that the heavy shower does not stop you. There's judgment. There's rain a-coming. What does Elijah say to Ahab? What is he doing? Shouldn't he command Phineas to take out the spear and dispatch Ahab? He doesn't do that, does he? 
He actually cares for Ahab. Hey, you better take a little nourishment. You've got a rough ride ahead of you. You've got 17 miles in that chariot, and your tires look pretty flat. Hey, it's going to rain. You know, you better put up that convertible top. You know, get ready to go. Yeah, and he did run ahead. What is Elijah doing? Why does he do this? Well, it brings us to our next principle. Can you tell I set this up? <laughs> even in the midst of trial, you can endure with joy and care for others. You can be a blessing even to those who are poised as your enemy. It wasn't Elijah's call to slay the king. There have been judges that were called to do such things. That was not Elijah's call. It was not Nathan's call to dispatch Solomon. Our message will not run if we go kicking and screaming. It's not the grumblers and complainers who shine as light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. I've got a little index card at my job. I've got it right under my computer monitor, and it has Philippians 2, 12 through 14. Keep your finger in 1 Kings. Let's turn to Philippians 2, 12 through 14. We're not a dour people. Even in the darkness of a dungeon, we can sing. We don't whine and bellyache as our society lines up against us, our convictions. We plead, we grieve. But beneath it all, we have untouchable strongholds of joy. Even in the worst, most inconvenient, most lonely days, we can rejoice. The suffering days are good days for gospel advance. Philippians 2, 12-14. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because God has put you right where he wants you. He is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And why? So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as what? Lights in the world. You and I will suffer adversity and opposition for our faith and just in this life alone for this very purpose, to show and display the glorious gospel of God and that we know that they cannot take away our treasure who is a precious and abiding one. Well, yes. Yeah, good point. Um, our sister brought up the fact that Ahab didn't argue with Elijah. He didn't say, you're the troubler of Israel. He said, okay, okay, I'm going to eat something. I'm going to get in my chariot. I've got this McDonald's. I've got my convertible top up. I'm going. Right? Of course, with this display of power, you think he might. Well, principle number nine. Principle number nine. Even in times of great success, there can be fear and exhaustion in those greatly used of God. God himself will gently minister to his child and grant rest, comfort, and a task to do. 
Starting in 1 Kings, verse 46. The hand of God was on Elijah. He girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. Any idea how many miles that is? 17 miles. About 17 miles. <laughs> he outran the chariot. <laughs> oh my goodness. How did he do this? This is a man with a nature like ours, right? James says that Elijah is a man with a nature like ours. And like you and I that get fearful, that's what happens. So he runs 17 miles. I don't know about you. I've never run 17 miles. Eight and a half miles was the longest I ever ran, but I, it was exhausting. I slept for two hours afterwards. Elijah was a man of strong passions, more hot and eager than most men, and therefore the more fit to deal with the daring sinners of his age, so wondrously does God fit men for the work he designs them. Martin Luther was no dainty. All right? He was a manly man, a little coarse around the edges. Some of us are like that. Our wives understand that. They still put up with us. We don't know who Elijah's parents were, by the way. His obscurity was no prejudice to his ministry, was it? <clears throat> we need not inquire where people are from, even if they come from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? <clears throat> well, look what happens next. Let's go to 1 Kings chapter 19. All right? Now Ahab told his sweetie Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a message. So may the gods do to me and more if I do not make your life as one of the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And what was Elijah's reaction? Was it... No, he feared he ran away. Now, here's a question for you. How far did he go this time? Any footnotes? About a hundred miles. He ran for his life about a hundred miles. <clears throat> He went under a juniper tree, requested that he might die. This is a man of prayer asking for this. It is enough now, O Lord. Take my life, for I am not better than my father's. Verse 5, he's laid down and slept. And behold, an angel touched him and said, Arise, eat. He ate the bread cake baked on hot stones, drank the water. Lay down, slept again. Again, arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. This had to be some really good bread, because he went 40 days and 40 nights on this. This, this, this ain't no Twinkie. It's amazing. Elijah was disappointed and fearful and exhausted. And God in his mercy did not chasten him. He did not rebuke him. He tenderly cared for him. And when you and I are faced with such things, we need to be aware that God will take care of us. And he will strengthen us. 
and he will send his word. Look at verse 11 in chapter 19. What happens? He, God listens to Elijah's complaint in verse 10. I was zealous for the Lord. The sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left. Is he seeing things realistically? No. The man is exhausted. He's disappointed. His emotions have gotten the better of him. What does God do? Verse 11. All right. Go stand on the mountain before the Lord. And the Lord was passing by. Was he in the wind? No. Was he in the earthquake? No. Was he in the fire? No. But after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face up in a mantle and he went out. What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? And how does God respond? God responds by giving him something to do and encourages him. And you know, there are times when we are despondent and we are besides ourselves, the best thing to do is to get some rest, feed ourselves upon God's word, and go do something for somebody else. Here is a man who was able to call down fire from heaven to prove Yahweh's preeminence. But when the Lord seemed to leave him all alone and Jezebel sought his death, he would flee to a cave and complain. Just as God deals with Elijah, Esther, and Mordecai, God does not have to appear visibly or spectacularly. God does not have to do outstanding, incredible works of power to comfort his people or to convince unbelievers. That's especially important today when we hear people saying that we need the extraordinary gifts of the spirits being manifested. God's power was already seen, not only in the prophets of Baal and fire from heaven, but in the cross and the resurrection. We're not going to be as those who seek a sign. Right? God encourages him. Verse 19, look at verse 15. Go return on your way in the wilderness of Damascus. When you have arrived, you will anoint Haziel king over Aram, and Yehu the son of Nimshi, you shall appoint king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shepheth of Abel Mehalah, you shall appoint as prophet in your place. And then the pièce de l'existence, verse 18, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, and really we could say 7,102, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he patiently endures us. He encourages us in his word. He reveals himself to us. He gives us something to do, and he reminds us and sets our mind at peace. And the last principle here is this. God will bring other people to bring a blessing to you. Now, here we are sitting in an adult Christian ed class. We're here to worship the living God. This is the right thing to do. But how many of us, how many of you, and I'm going to ask for a show of hands here, how many of you, when you're going through tough times, 
when you are in a trial or when you are upset about something, don't want to come. How many of you? There are a few honest people here. God will bring others along to be a blessing for you. That's why the fellowship of the believers is so critically important. That's why it's important for us to do that. Well, we're running out of time. Our conclusion, 1 Peter 4, uh, 12 through 14. We're not going to be surprised, but instead we are going to be confident. We're going to be confident in God himself. Eric Little, who was a Scottish divinity student, <clears throat> trained for the purpose of winning the 100-meter race at the Olympic races of 1924. Things changed. He wasn't able to do that. And he had lots of pressure. And his, um, he was roundly criticized in every aspect of his life because he wasn't willing to violate his conscience concerning running on the Lord's Day. Well, God changed things around. He ran the 400 meter and won. Yeah. Incredible story. And when the Sunday he was supposed to have run, he preached from Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, 15. The nations are as a drop in a bucket and regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Isaiah 40, verse 31. Yet those who wait on the Lord shall gain new strength. They will mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not... So we can be confident in the scriptures, not only in God himself, but in his word. It will not return empty. We do not follow cleverly devised tales. We are following the living God. We have confidence in Christ Jesus himself. He is our rock. He is our cornerstone. He is the great tower in which we can take refuge. We will fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And lastly, we're going to look forward with confident hope in his return and God's plan for the ages. In closing, uh, and I think you may have suspected this, we're going to close with a song. And the song was uh, suggested by Sandy Taylor, um, and it's a terrific song. I'm going to ask that the gentleman in the sound booth go ahead and play that for us, and uh, that you listen and read the words that are going to be on the overhead. You don't have to sing the song. Be
confidence in him and we can rejoice with those who rejoice we can weep with those who weep and we can be used of God in a broken world so there's no surprise there's no surrender And there can be no retreat. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness. Thank you, O Lord, that we have a treasure in heaven reserved for us. We thank you for the life of Elijah and the rest of the cloud of witnesses that bear testimony to your goodness, to your persevering and preserving power. We thank you that you are worthy of our full trust and confidence and hope. Lord, I pray that you would use us, use even us in this day, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our jobs, in this nation, for your honor and glory. And we thank you and look forward expectantly to what you will do the honor and glory of your son. Amen. Amen.